Um, but we're obviously we're not live. We won't go live. I think May, what is it? May 28th uh, is the date that I have planned. If nobody, if any, somebody drops out, I'll move it up because I know your release is like what, May 1st? Yeah, uh, May 3rd, but with supply chains, like who knows? Oh, you know? is, that, is that potentially an issue? Yeah, for every author, it has been. Yeah, we've all gotten emails that are like, just so you know, your actual release date might not be for a couple weeks after the announced release date. So I, I'm considering it like a soft, like a release month. Kind of like, <laughs> like, when, like when you're pregnant, if you're smart, you think of it as like a due month instead of a due date, just in case you go late. <laughs> I think we should talk about that uh, on the show here in a moment. Let's do. I, I imagine, I, well, I know there's some other authors in that situation. Yep. I just uh, rescheduled a bunch of these because they're all like, oh, sorry, the last minute our uh, shipments got delayed. There you go. So who had their books uh, sunk to the bottom of the ocean. So that's, that's... <laughs> I know that happened to some folks. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine. That would be heartbreaking. Yeah. Well, my point with that was just, I'm super flexible. So slap me in wherever it needs to go. If it's, it doesn't matter to me whether it's like right around release date or after people will find it and find the book when they find it. So. I know that like, there's so much uh, emphasis on these release dates and for like a practical reason. I understand when I talk to PR people, why they do it. I understand, you know, we got to pick a date and we got to get as the earlier sale, the earlier the sales, the better, especially if yep. they're considering doing another print, another run, or if they're considering additional promotion and yeah. where to prioritize it. So all that makes sense. Yeah. But like realistically, I'm finding books forever that came out a decade ago, two decades ago, and I love them today right now especially middle grade. Middle grade has this lasting power uh, that other age categories don't always get. So yeah, I think it is all about the momentum around release date, but um, from my point of view, yeah, it's all flexible. So it kind of makes, I don't know if it makes that much sense for when they do it for movies, but books, especially not. Yeah. Because like I'm buying author's book if I know them or if I'm at their launch event. Yeah, that's what I did this weekend. I went to the first launch event post pandemic where I was able to go in person uh, and and buy my friend's book and have him sign it and all that good stuff. Yeah. Um, and so like then I'll buy it right through the estate. But otherwise, if I know a book's out, if I have a hold on my schedule, now is the time or more often yep. than yep. I'm wherever my my uh, spot on the on the hold list from the library. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, and yeah, I, a movie is over in two hours. You can watch any movie, even if you're not really in the mood for it. But a book, I, yeah, I feel like there's certain books for certain moods. And if the mood doesn't match up, it's not time for that book, even if I really want to read it. So yeah, it's a but like you said, you understand from the PR point of view, you got to pick a date and you got to follow through with the marketing and create some momentum and then move on to the next book. So I understand, but it is enough to make a, to drive an author slightly nuts around release date with all of the stuff that happens. And then the weirdest is right after the radio silence. With every book that's come out, I've had to get used to that. Like the big push and all this excitement. And then the book comes out and like two weeks later, you're like, huh. Oh, there's nothing. There's nothing else. Like there's just the books out. We did all the things. And then am I forgotten? Am I, is my book forgotten? Who knows? I feel like this should be the, the start of the show. Cause I, I think this is relevant to everybody that's, that's uh, launching right that's now. That's great. That's great. Um, 
because uh, hi there, esteemed audience, lovely, lovely, happy. <laughs> um, Hello. <laughs> so two weeks after, three weeks after, when do you, because this is your fourth launch, right? This is my fourth launch, yeah. So when do you get some kind of confirmation that, hey, my book's out in the world and it's doing great, or I better hurry up and write that next book sooner than I expected? <laughs> <laughs> so so for me personally, um, actually around the time that I turned the book in for copy edits is when I naturally emotionally have removed myself from the world of the book. It's re it's way before the book even comes out and even is being discussed. So, um, and that's because I am a pretty prolific writer and I'm always working on the next thing. And so by the time the book's in copy edits, I, like I've moved on, like I, I and I've emotionally, um, I can't make any more big changes, nor do I need to. So copy edits feel so nitpicky that I just, I don't know, something in my brain is just like, you did it, you're done. You passed the finish line with that one. And it's, it's just your job. Yeah. Your job is done. Move on to the next thing. So release time is always weird, like time traveling almost because I have to like really think about, okay, I have to think about like the last time I really deeply cared about this book as its creator. And like, I have to remember what it felt like to work on it. So for me, that was like about a year ago when we turned it into copy edits. Um, but as far as like, when do you get confirmation? I don't know. Do you ever, maybe if you win a Newberry, then you're like, oh yeah, this book came out and people liked it. Done. Check. Um, I mean, I well, still have to replace that with the dread of will my next book win another Newberry? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So, um, one thing I've learned about publishing, well, I've learned a lot about publishing, but one thing that keeps coming up for me is that the goalposts are always moving always. Um, you know, you, you feel like, oh, as soon as I can get an agent or as soon as I can get a first draft done, then I'll, I'll feel validated or I'll feel like I'm succeeding or I'm on my way. And then you cross that line and then the next thing comes up that you're chasing, which is great. I mean, stagnation isn't for me anyway, <laughs> maybe for some people, but, um, but it, it does mean that you can constantly be chasing after some validation that is never really going to happen because as soon as you cross that, then you're just looking ahead. Like you said, you win the Newberry and then your next book, you're like, oh no, if this doesn't win the Newberry, then like, does that mean, what does that mean? But you're very lucky if you win one Newberry in your life. So it, it's not really realistic to constantly, it's not realistic to constantly need the same level of validation for every single project and every single book, because eventually like there's only so much you can optimize in your life, like before you're like, okay, I, you know, I think about this with like step counting. I used to like keep track of my steps every day, you know, um, cause I like numbers and I, it got to a point where I was like, okay, you know, one year I did like on average, like 12,000 steps a day and felt pretty good. And was like, I could do more than that next year. And then it was like 15,000 steps a day. And then like 18,000 steps a day. And at what point do you go, okay, I can't keep raising the bar for myself every year or else I'm going to be trying to do 50,000 steps every day or else I'll feel like a failure. And that's, I don't know, that is kind of how I see book releases, books in general, just what are you trying to optimize and why? Um, I don't, I can't even remember what the question originally was, but there's, 
Oh, me either. We're doing great. It's fine. Okay, good. <laughs> good. Um, the good news is you're on the Middle Grade Ninja podcast. Uh, that's so right. This is this is the moment. It's this is the ultimate validation. <laughs> yep. We can take when, the goalpost down. Prior to this, when when was the first time you felt like, oh, I am an author? It did happen for me. Was it the launch of that first book or was it before that, after that? Um, honestly, probably getting my agent getting my agent uh, that was, so that would have been August of 2013 um a year in which i spent a lot of time on the middle grade ninja website reading lots of blog posts because like i just loved reading stories of people who like people's publishing stories and you published you posted a ton of them and so i was on there a lot um but i i got my agent and it felt like a concrete thing i could tell people like Hey, I, I, I took that first step, like, and, and also it felt like the first time somebody else had said yes to me, somebody outside of just like my family telling me like, good job, you can do this. Um, yeah. So probably when I got, when I got my agent, but I, I think my threshold for validation is probably a lot lower than other people's. It doesn't take much for me. Well, I know that uh, when I got my agent, people go, that's great. What's a literary agent? So oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it didn't quite cross the line for me. Oh, yeah. But see, then you can like really play up what this means when you're explaining it to non-publishing people. Be like, see, this is the first step. Like all it takes now is just a book deal. And then, which of course, it's much more complex than that. But, um, but yeah, that was, I mean, that was the first time, like I said, somebody that I didn't know a stranger who had no reason to say yes to me just to stroke my ego had said yes. And, um, so that felt very validating. And your agent is Victoria. How do you say her last name? Marini. Yeah. So Victoria is my second agent. My first agent, um, we, well, I, yeah, we just grew I, this shouldn't be so com complicated to talk about. It's like this weird taboo, I feel like, among writers to not talk about leaving agents. But we just weren't that business compatible after all, <laughs> which is hard to tell um, when you sign with an agent based on just what you know about them online and a, the first few phone calls. Um, we were compatible at first, and then I wanted different things than I think she wanted for my career. And so in 2019, I said, I don't think we should work together anymore. I think this is frustrating for both of us. And so I found another agent. I found Victoria, who actually I almost signed with originally. Victoria was one of the agents who had offered representation on bees back in 2013. And so I reached back out to her six years later and was like, uh, you still interested in working with me? And she's forgiving. And so she said, yes. <laughs> 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 that would be a, a huge thing because 2019 that's after the first three books right uh, um, yeah and actually after um i had six books total under contract with candlewick at that point yeah wow yeah that's a, that's a huge life uh yeah life it was it was um very anxiety inducing to have those conversations I felt very guilty. I felt very convinced by 
her emails back saying like, no, maybe we can work this out. But like, I just, I just had, yeah, it's, it's a hard thing, but you know what? I know more writers who have left their first or even second agents than I know writers who have stayed with their original agent. It's not a marriage. It's a business partnership. And sometimes you just aren't compatible business-wise and there might be somebody better to work with for you and your personality. That's it. Like, it doesn't have to be personal. It doesn't mean that you're a diva if you need to leave your agent. Like, it's it's not a marriage. I sometimes don't like the way that we talk about finding an agent as if you're locked down for life. I, I don't, I think that can be a very toxic mindset, but. Well, it's definitely very uh, in favor of, uh, of, of agents uh, rather sure. than authors. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, um, it's hard to realize, like I had to realize like, oh yeah, she works for me technically. Like I kind of hired her, even though um, when you're querying, it feels so much like the agents have all the power um, because they're the ones that, you know, you're waiting for them to say yes to you. Um, but after that, I mean, it is a partnership, but also it's your work that they're submitting and it was just, it was, yeah, anyway, it was hard for, um, my previous agent. It was really hard for me to maintain that kind of dynamic. I felt very much like she knew what she was doing and I should just agree with everything that she said for my career. And, um, so I needed to find somebody who I could communicate with and have it feel more like a partnership. So I'm with Victoria Marini, and she's wonderful. I think if I had a, a hole in my roof, I wouldn't send out letters to 20 different roofers and go, oh, God, I hope this is the one. Please come fix my I know. roof. Isn't it a weird <laughs> dynamic? It's so weird. And yet I understand why it functions the way it functions. Um, there's a certain, like, gatekeeping I think gatekeeping helps um, keep publishing fresh. I say with a question mark, like it's so controversial. I don't know. Uh, I question mark, hoping you'll elaborate. Go on. <laughs> well, I just as I was saying that, I also like realized that gatekeeping is also what keeps traditional publishing uh, problematic and exclusionary and all of these terrible things that, um, with, uh, writers of color and writers of marginalized backgrounds, like gatekeeping is very often, um, what keeps them from having a fair shot in publishing as well. But, um, I should say I, I spent like nine months as a, an unpaid intern for a literary agent, um, back in 2012 for Mary Cole, back when she was uh, an agent in publishing. She's um, doing freelance editing now, but... Um, Previous guest, Mary Cole, who I think yes. was episode three or episode five, very early. In the, in the, Way the, back in the days. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, amazing now editor. Uh, yes. Previous, uh, I assume amazing agent, but she worked for her. You tell me. Yeah. Oh, she was great. She was so great. In fact, there's so many books that came through her inbox that went on to sell either with Mary or with other agents that I still like monstrous by Marcy Kate Connolly. Um, I got to read that in manuscript form and still just remember. Also previous guest. 
Yes. So I'll, oh, yeah. I'll stop plugging. <laughs> no, please plug away. Your uh, your roster is catalog esteemed audience. They're all there. You do exactly. Um, but Mary hired me to basically look like to help take care of her inbox, and um, among other things. And I remember looking like being about to open her slush pile, like her inbox for the first time and just thinking, okay, this is either going to be incredibly encouraging because I'm going to look and see that there's actually not that many amazing books waiting in here. And that I do have a shot at, you know, getting an agent of my own someday, or it's going to be super discouraging because it's going to be 80 amazing manuscripts waiting in here. And I'm just going to realize like how the odds are absolutely out of my favor. And I, I opened her inbox and was like, oh, I feel like I could be published because (laughs) so many of the emails were like people who either were delusional and didn't understand publishing, like things like, I want to write the next Da Vinci Code and I want you to split the money with me. Like, that's not how publishing works. That's not, uh, that's not what we're doing here. Are you telling Uh, us Mary Cole didn't jump on that offer? I know what a shame. Um, or people who just were not there yet and needed like another few rounds of refiner's fire before they were ready. And I think I have a lot of thoughts about, um, the different kind of branches that publishing is taken, especially with self-publishing and traditional and indie and all of these and like hybrid and all of these, there's so many models and so many ways to get your books, um, in front of audiences. And I like, I love them all. And I have experience with a lot of them. Um, but the, the gatekeeping aspect in traditional publishing, um, I think not only does it help weed out people who are writing the next Da Vinci Code and want to split the money 50-50, but it also teaches authors to like grow a thick skin. It really is like the refiner's fire that you need later. I think like if you're, if you're getting used to rejection first at the querying stage and you, you learn how that feels in your body and you, um, you practice it, then later when you're being rejected by readers who give you poor ratings or just by like the radio silence of nobody really talking about your book online. I don't know. I I feel like it's all connected. Like you learn how to, you learn, you have to learn how to live with rejection and that, and the querying process can help with that in a weird way. uh, Keep writing, even though your, your heart's been repeatedly broken. Yes. Yes. I mean, that's the job. That's the job is like, you keep going, you keep writing. How important is writing to you, even with all of these um, expectations maybe being crushed? And if you can stick around and keep writing, then um, then you'll survive. So I, I used to have this myth in my mind that there was a, a point you could reach where it would be like, oh, now I'm here. I am the author I always dreamed of being. Goodbye, anxiety. Goodbye, yep. bad feelings. It's all happiness from here on out. And I'm continually learning by talking to the people I would expect that to be true for that it isn't. I had, uh, can't, can't stop plugging, but when I chatted with Catherine Patterson, uh, just oh, an yes. amazing conversation, well worth listening. Uh, she revealed that uh, when she finishes a book, she's always convinced this is the last one. It's terrible. They're all going to hate me now. It's wow. it's all over. 
And I'm like, no, you're, you're beloved. The dream came true, Catherine Patterson. Everything is great. And, and she disagrees. <laughs> Fair yeah. enough. So I don't, I don't think there is that, that plateau you reach where now I'm above it all. You just keep, you just keep going. And even if you did reach that plateau in your professional life, there would be something in your personal life or there's always something you've got to be juggling, I feel. Yeah. There's no real finish line really, which is a bummer, I guess, but also maybe it's not a race at all. So we should stop looking for a finish line. Maybe it's just a nice stroll and, um, sometimes a jog, but, uh, yeah, the, the rejection never ends. Um, there's no point, I don't think, where you you reach golden author status and no longer hear the word no. It, it just no, doesn't no, 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 it cannot be revealed. That point is coming on this show, esteemed audience. Come, come on this show and then everything is great for you. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, I'm very excited to never, ever hear no again in my, <laughs> in my writer life. Oh, my gosh. I would be a monster. <laughs> I want to go back and we, we kind of hit the ground running. I want to talk a little bit more about your time uh, as an intern for a literary agency. But first, I want to talk a bit about your journey as a writer, because yeah. when you're 12, you fill out a worksheet for school that your dream career is to be a writer and your teacher tells you it's too unrealistic. Yep. Yep. My guidance counselor said, no, 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 no. Pick something more realistic. So um, I wrote the next thing that the next job that I wanted to have, which was, I wanted to be in the WNFL, which I was certain was going to be a thing someday. Um, <laughs> they, he said, no, pick something, something else, something that's a real job. And I, so I wrote marine biologist because that was another obsession of mine. I feel like there's a group of writers. Like I feel like children's writers, especially there's so many of us that were into marine biology as kids. Um, anyway, side note, maybe that's like a poll that you can start taking unofficially it does come up surprisingly often just with the yeah. guests on the show yeah um but yeah it's um and my family still knows that guidance counselor and it was really fun years later to say wait a minute I thought being a writer as a career was unrealistic and yet here I am and he was very kind and was just like I just wanted to make sure that you picked something where you would actually like be paid and have some stability, but good job. I always knew you would do it, <laughs> which is fair. I mean, that's like what a junior high counselor is supposed to do. I understand. That's something now that I say, if I teach a class or I give a presentation on writing, I point out that the, oh, what was it? The um, average author income, according to the Writers Guild survey of a year ago or two years ago was somewhere around 6,080 bucks. Uh, yep. Even if you're away from the coast, you're living here in the heartland where the cost of living is much lower. You're not getting by on 6,080 bucks. Oh yeah. It's, um, and, and I was not prepared for, and this is like another thing that I always like to remind newer writers is how cyclical the money can be too. I mean, $6,000, then that may come in waves and you may have one year, you know, maybe a year when you sign your contract and get paid that, that might be, I don't know, like a high five figure year for you. And then the next two years, you might be getting way, way less, like maybe only four figures if you're lucky. And, um, I think I know plenty of writers who have 
had the same journey. Well, and me too, where you sort of quit the day job or you say, I made it. I signed my contract. This is my career now. And then years later, after seeing how the money comes in these feast or famine, weird cycles, because publishing pays out, at least traditional publishing pays out in these big chunks with a lot of time in between. Um, So you really have to like budget. And it's always like robbing Peter to pay Paul and like catching up and then you're out of money again. Um, so many writers end up having to like go back to a day job or find another job after they've been publishing for a while because they realize or they learn like, oh, it's actually incredibly unstable the way that you get paid. And that can feel like a huge failure. Like you can feel like a failure if you have to go back and find another source of income, even if you're still publishing or you have been publishing, but like the money thing for traditional publishing is so cyclical. And like, if one year you need an extra job to like pay your bills, that doesn't mean you're not a real writer anymore. And next year you might not need it or whatever. So it, it just, um, you have great years and you have not so great years. And, um, unless you have like a trust fund or a very wealthy spouse or some other way to even things out. Yeah. There might be some years where you're teaching piano lessons and there might be other years where you can just write full time, or maybe you are smart and keep your day job. I don't know, but it's very cyclical. Now, of course, um, post-pandemic, mid-pandemic, wherever the heck we are uh, in, in this thing. Uh, I know publishers are breaking up pay- advance payments. That they, they broke them down to four, and now I've heard it hearing five. Yeah. Uh, and that will probably be a trend that continues. Maybe not, but it seems that way, which might be useful for tax purposes. You, you'll pay a lower tax bill, maybe possibly overall. But you're talking, I, I think I read one example of a $25,000 advance paid out in five different installments over four years. Now, who's that's a joke. That's, that's better than the, that, you know what, that's that's actually what's worse than the, the 6,080 bucks or, or whatever it is per year. Uh, presumably, right. you've got maybe some other books that are earning possibly some royalties coming in possibly some speaking gigs now that hopefully folks are going to come out in person or zoom gigs or whatever. Yeah. It's still going to be kind of a hard scramble life for some authors, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It is. It's, um, and I don't know what the answer is, but I, I just, it's weird to, it's weird to my family, especially, um, like my parents and my siblings for them to see how hard I work and know like how little the money actually is in comparison to how much you work. Like you can, uh, writing books, whether you have another day job or not, can easily take up 40 hours a week if you wanted to, you know, like if you have the, it, it, it takes a lot of work to write and, and um, edit books. And yet you don't always get paid for the equivalent of like a 40 hour work week. So it's weird. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, I have a lot of emotional thoughts about the, the way that publishers pay out authors. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I will be interested to see, uh, what happens. It seems like we're, there's a reckoning coming of some sort. There's been a lot of conversations, um, about the workload that editors have, um, there's been a lot of editors leaving the business recently because it's just too much work for too little pay. 
good editors, amazing editors. Um, so with very high profile exits, which I applaud, because then we can all enjoy and finding out, oh, that's what was happening at that house. Oh, that's how they were treating this particular person. Now yep. we all have that data to to work for. Exactly. Exactly. Um so I don't know. My publisher is Candlewick Press and they've always been so good to me. Um, they're not splitting their advances into five parts, <laughs> as far as I know. They're very, they've always been very reasonable and had a pretty good uh, work environment for their, for their employees, as far as I know. Well, Candlewick's a bit of a bigger press and very well established as opposed to some yep. of these. I, I don't know what the term. I never want to say bad things, even if I know that a that a that a particular group has been scamming authors. Like, why did they? Who's telling that story? Where? How are we interpreting the scam? Unless it's black and white, you were charging authors money that you knew they were never going to make back. I right. still like to extend this um, um, this this thought that oh, you were in you were in books, so there was a goodness to you somewhere in there that went yes. a little bit awry. I'm sure. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's how I feel too. Especially because I don't think anyone gets into publishing for the money, <laughs> include like authors, agents, editors, publicists, um, everybody. I, it's not like if you are hoping to strike it rich, there's so many other places that you should go that will require less work and that will make you more money. So this is not the, you, you're better off buying a lottery ticket if you're hoping to become a millionaire off of publishing, unless you're in these higher ups in these bigger publishing companies, but that's also, that's every corporation. So yeah, it's, um, it's a, an industry that runs on the labor of love and that's great, but, um, you can't feed your children with love, love for books. Well, it's, it's hard sometimes to distinguish what what part of this is the problem of publishing and what part of it is just the problem of capitalism period where we pretend that if you worked harder, you'd be Leonardo DiCaprio and you yep. chose to be you without health insurance. You should have chosen DiCaprio. What'd you do? Exactly. <laughs> it is. It's really frustrating. Well, and, and I feel like there's lots of hearkening back to these sort of like um, more golden ages of publishing, like looking back at the 50s and 60s and even the 70s when you know short story writers were being paid a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars for a short story which is very like unheard of now um and so is it yeah is it the publishing has just succumbed to capitalism's cold march or is it i don't know i don't i don't have the answer either Wow, this is a cynical conversation, Rob. We're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna get to the <laughs> the good the, stuff. Uh, we're we're gonna talk brighter okay. publishing things and some yeah. talk the patron thief of bread available sometime in the month of May or whenever right. you're listening to this esteemed audience is probably available now. Yeah. I did read a, a guide not that long ago it was uh, Kurt Vonnegut giving advice to, to writers. Yeah. Uh, just anecdotal and one of his first points of advice was try and sell a, a short story to get you enough money to cover living expenses for the next two or three years so you can really focus on your novel. Wow. What That's a lovely thought, Mr. Vonnegut. In all fairness, he was here in Indiana, lower cost of living, but still. Sure, but still, wow, yeah, does, that feels like just another, a completely other time and place. Wow. 
But there are plenty of bright spots in publishing still. Even now, I was just at a lovely launch for uh, Marie Sparatus, which I think he'll have been on before this episode airs, I think is how we worked it out. Um, um, and there were, he had a whole fashion parade at his signing, lots of kids uh, dressed up and, and, and dancing. And he, he walked up to the stage with them. Everybody had an amazing time. It was a celebration of books and reading and wow. how glorious that was. And that that's happening all the time. There's, there's plenty of great stuff happening out there in the world. So I'm fascinated oh, yeah. by this idea. You know you want to be an author from at least age 12 because you wrote it down, but, but probably before then. Yes. Uh, and then when you have your daughter at age 22, that's when you get serious about publication. So what is it about age 22 with a daughter that, that uh, changes, the, changes the conversation for you? Yeah, so actually this is kind of um, a, like a poignant little story that I'm about to share. So um, all through my like publishing career, I've been telling the same story that like, I've been trying to like finish a novel and I would only get like three chapters in over and over like for years and years. And then finally I have my daughter at 22 and it finally, you know, makes me think, well, if I can push out a kid, I could push out a novel. Like I could do this. If I can give birth, I could do anything. A book can't be that hard. And I finally finished my first novel. Well, in the last couple of years, I went back and looked at those dates. And actually I finished my first novel before I even got pregnant. So I had mixed up these dates in my head for years and years. So I finished my first book um, about a year before I had my daughter. And um, which is kind of like, oh, cool. I did it just for my own reasons and not because I was like, oh, I'm a mother now, like time to get serious about uh, all of these things that I've always wanted to do. Um, so it was February of 2009 and the Amazon breakthrough novel award contest was ongoing. Do you remember this contest that? Vaguely was... remind, uh, remind the Steve audience. Yes. Um, so basically it was around the time that self-publishing was really getting up and going and, and um, with Amazon entering as like a serious player there. But this was for a, um, a publishing contract with Penguin. So you would submit your novel to the Amazon Breakthrough Novel Award Contest. It would go through several rounds. And if you won, you would get this publishing contract with Penguin. Um, and in the meantime, they were, Amazon was, you know, searching through all of the submissions to find people to like jointly self-publish through Amazon. Um, but I would just saw, I, I didn't know how publishing worked. I just saw like, oh, enter this contest, potentially get published by Penguin. That's a publisher that I know of. So I heard the deadline was like three weeks away. And I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to write a novel and enter it. So that's what I did. I, I just like butt in chair, hands on keyboard, um, just like threw up this novel that was not very good and submitted it. And it made it through the first round. And then the second round, the um, celebrity special author judges were Sue Grafton and Sue Monk Kid, And they read through all the submissions and gave um, little like one paragraph feedback to 
all of us who did not make it to the next round. So Sue Monk Kid gave me this paragraph of very lovely feedback. She complimented my author voice and um, my descriptions and my language. And Sue Grafton devastated me with her paragraph, <laughs> her crit criticism. She like tore me apart. And it was, I mean, again, so warranted because it was not a great book. Um, but the, I, then, you know, I, I was like, well, I did it. I wrote, I finished a novel. I could do it again. And I did have my daughter. And then basically like in those quiet, long stretches of like nursing my daughter and staring at an infant and just being like, what are we supposed to do? Like we have a lot of time to fill up. I immediately started working on another book and just here I am. I still do that. Still just constantly working on the next book. Good for you. I remember I had a baby on my chest and a video game controller. Uh, just oh, that was, There was plenty of that too. <laughs> there was plenty of that. Yeah. No, I, I, I tease. I also had moments where I had them in a pouch and I, so I could type. And get yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I should say too, like I was a single mom. I was terrified. I had no idea. Like I, I just was like, I guess this is my life now to do everything with a kid. So I better figure out how to do all this with a kid. So. And you did. And I did. Here I am. Yeah. And um, so, okay. And then I had read that uh, you had written Hour of Bees in 10 days. Yes. Is that right? Yep. So what yeah. does the days look like? Um, getting up at about 6, 6.30, because my oldest was up with the sun and um, handwriting it in a notebook, because that's like my preferred first draft method still is to, to handwrite it. Um, so I would handwrite while she, in like little five and 10 minute bursts throughout the day while she was playing, while she was, she was three at the time. Um, we, it was June. So we went to the park and I would sit under this tree and sounds very idyllic when I explain it like that, but I just, yeah, it was basically notebook in hand for 10 days straight. And, um, she went to bed pretty early. She went to bed at like seven. And so I would type up what I had for the day and kind of expand it or, um, yeah, just revisit it so that I was fresh for the next day. It was, it was kind of like a it wasn't quite a fugue state, um, but it was a very special insulated bubble of time in which I just, I don't know, I just, the story just spilled out. I would love to have a 10 day fugue state where I came to, like, where am I? Oh my God, a book. <laughs> How wonderful. <laughs> it has, it, I, I have had 10, I have had um, fugue states like that since, but they have never been as fruitful as that ever. Um, and that, I mean, the story basically, all of my revisions for Hour of the Bees were pretty minor. Like the, the main story didn't really change. And so it really was like a lightning bolt. Um, that's so frustrating to say, and it's frustrating to hear, but I just know that I've never gotten that since ever. Every book after that has been like pulling teeth. So the, the universe has balanced itself out. <laughs> well, there's some of that positivity we were, we promised. I mean, not, not the pulling <laughs> teeth part, 
But you too, esteemed audience, if it could happen to Lindsay, perhaps one day you can be hit by that bolt of lightning and uh, go into a fugue state for 10 days and, and, that's and right. compose an amazing novel that's uh, going to come out uh, and, and be a huge hit and lead to yep. this sort of a successful publishing career. Yeah, yeah. I'll say um, Hour of the Bees was started on the heels of a very devastating realization that the book I was working on before that, which turned out to later would become Race to the Bottom of the Sea. That was the book I was working on for years before I started Hour of the Bees. And I trunked it. I could not get it right. It, it was, and it was the book of my heart. It was everything that like 10-year-old Lindsay would want in a book. It was so special. And I just was not a good enough writer. And it was so frustrating. And literally the night before I started Hour of the Bees, I like gathered up all my papers gathered up, like put all my files on my laptop away for race to the bottom of the sea and put it all away. Cause I was like, I need a break from this. I need to start something new because a, a writer, whether you succeed at a book or you fail at a book, um, you come to the end of a book and you need to start something new. So my goal with Hour of the Bees was just to get the taste of race to the bottom of the sea out of my mouth, just to do something else, to succeed at starting something new um so it was fueled by spite maybe and by devastation and by the desire to write something totally different tonally plot wise setting wise just to get away from this big sad failure what was it uh do you know that 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 uh, was holding you back then and that eventually allowed you to finish the race to the bottom of the sea um, when I started Race to the Bottom of the Sea, I actually started that novel with a list. I, I wrote a list of everything that would be exciting for 10-year-old Lindsay to read in a book. And it was a very long list. And it included like sharks, candy, librarians, pirates, all, like all of these things that are in the book. Um, but it was a much longer list. And the the initial drafts of Race to the Bottom of the Sea were really more like seven books in one. I, I'm not even kidding. They were very episodic, very, um, like, like seven plots, like each chapter felt like looking back now I can look and see like, oh, that whole chapter is basically like one, the opening third of another <laughs> novel. I just thought the answer was to just cram everything in. Um, and so really those few years were me trying to smooth out this giant, all of these giant complex plots that I had smushed together, which just, I needed some space and time away to prune and find like the one true plot, um, which I was able to do years later when my editor said, okay, I bought two books from you. It's Hour of the Bees and what else, what's the other one? And I said, could it be raised to the bottom of the sea? Will you help me please get this book right? Um, and I just like plucked and pruned and was like, why are all of these stories in here? There's like so many, and, and like the amount of characters that I cut from that book easily, like 15 characters, like so many, so many characters. So I just basically tried to write like all of a series of unfortunate events in one novel. <laughs> and then it was like, after, yeah, after writing bees, after getting my editor, after leveling up as a writer, I was able to look at it and be like, oh, Lindsay, no, no, no. You get one plot, just pick one. And um, so I picked, I picked the one. So, <clears throat> so the problem then was 
not something you could have fixed prior to the hour of the bees because it involved you had to step away and then yep. come back with a fresh perspective. There wasn't anything you could have done at that moment until later. No. Is that right? No. And believe me, I was trying. I mean, that was like, I woke up, I thought about race to the bottom of the sea. I worked on it all day. I just was too close to it. And I, I just needed more experience as a writer and as a reader too. I mean, um, I just needed to read more current middle grade books. And I, at that time, you know, the books that were being published, the books that were being acquired and, um, and then have that perspective. Which I me, uh, we, we, we blew past that for people who aren't used to dealing with publishing, just to clarify, an editor bought two books for you and then she doesn't know what the second book is. Yes. Yes. That's how it worked for me. So sometimes, um, sometimes, uh, an author will sell one book at a time and there's lots of reasons for doing that. Some authors want to have a book completely finished before they sell it, which is smart in a lot of ways. Um, sometimes editors just want one book at a time. Maybe it's a publishing, their, their own publishing house, kind of their standard. Um, or maybe they're not quite sure about taking on this author long-term. And so they want to just offer, you know, a, a one book contract. There's lots of reasons, but um, very often you get these beautiful little two book deals and it will often be for the one book that's finished, or at least, you know, hopefully usually there's like a, a partial or a proposal of some sort. Um, but like the majority of the time it's finished and it's, it's already gone through some sort of revision with the agent. Um, and then they'll often buy, yeah, a second unnamed project. Um, it's a sort of second chance for the author to like, yeah, it's, it's a two in one. It's, it's great. Um, and it's the second chance for the publishing company to kind of put another book out by you and see, um, see what you can do. A lot of authors find it liberating to have that second book already under contract. Um, and I, I feel like a lot of authors use that as an opportunity to do something really different and unexpected um, for a follow-up book because um, like maybe switch genres or because it's already, it's already under contract and it's, um, so it's fun to kind of take it as a, yeah, as a, a wild card, I guess. That's what, that's what my editor and I ultimately decided to do with race. It's so different from Hour of the Bees and, um, which I was very concerned about. It's <laughs> like, oh no, this is not probably the ideal follow-up for Hour of the Bees, especially as bees got some success right out of the gate. i was very concerned, like maybe I should be writing something that's more, um, that's closer in tone or, you know, theme to bees. And my editor said, oh, no, 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 no. Let's put out something totally different so that they don't pigeonhole you. Let's just go for it. Which was very wise of her because nobody knows what to expect from me now, including myself. So, <laughs> and so it's great. It sounds wonderfully freeing. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, and something with uh, Hour of the Bees, uh, that one, the protagonist is a 12-year-old Mexican-American girl, Yes. Uh, which as we've been talking, I have carefully deduced that you are not 12 years old. I am not 12 <laughs> years old. That's <laughs> correct. You do not appear to be a Mexican-American I am not. No. Um, so how do, uh, one, how do you write about someone whose experience is so much different than your I, I Part of me hates asking that question because you're an author of course you're writing about somebody whose experience is different than sure. you don't have a story but sure. when you're writing about somebody from uh from a completely different background than your own how do you make sure that you're honoring that background and and, and representing uh that culture 
and then also, how do you negotiate with publishers that though you don't have that background, you're going to be the uh, a, a person who wrote a book about someone with that background? Yes, I have thoughts. I have so many thoughts. And I'm so glad that you asked this question because I actually think it's really important, but I really need to take a drink. So let me take a drink <laughs> while I gather my thoughts. Okay, up top, this is probably an unfair disclosure, but I just want to be like totally honest. If I were writing Hour of the Bees today, I would not write a Mexican-American character. Um, I wrote that in 2013. I had very different thoughts and opinions and feelings about what I personally could and should be doing <clears throat> as a writer. Um, my, where I'm at now personally is, um, and again, this is just, this is personal. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to like set out a mandate. I just want to say where I'm coming from so that other writers can maybe hear it and be like, oh, that's something that I could consider too, or that's something to think about. Until there are a decent amount of writers of color. As a white author, I feel right now, like personally, I will just be writing white protagonists. Until we have as many authors of color as there are characters of color, until that feels, until the canon of authors of color is a little more fleshed out, that's where I feel, um, that's what I'm gonna do. And um, I will say my next book that comes out next year <clears throat> is a YA that was also originally about a Mexican American family. And I, in revisions, the biggest thing that I changed in revisions was changed the characters to be white rather than Mexican American. Even though I had done all the research, I had written the book many times over. Um, so that's partly why that book took so is taking so long to come out. It was supposed to be out in 2019. Um, because I had this reckoning where I just realized like, oh, whatever I thought I was doing by writing a character of color, um, it's not actually what I, how I want to be supporting authors of color. So I have changed my tune a little since I wrote Hour of the Bees. Um, and I've had conversations with my editor too, where she said, I probably wouldn't acquire Hour of the Bees now. Um because of your background and the character's background. I would, I just have different thoughts about that. So A, it's Knowing okay. that the book would, did go on to be a success. Yeah, I mean, that's just, and, and again, that's, that's um, <clears throat> after a lot of, I, I, I'm not gonna pretend like it was easy to like <laughs> come to that conclusion or um, to make those changes for my upcoming book. And there were a lot of, um, really painful conversations and, and reflections that I did um, with my editor, with my agent, with my writer friends on my own. Um, and so just A, it's okay to change. It's okay to change your mind. It's, it's good to um, shift and pay attention to what's happening in publishing and listen to lots of voices. And it's also okay if you are a white writer who is going to continue to write protagonists of color. I'm not, that's, I'm not saying we should all stop this. I'm just letting people know where I'm coming from. Um, at the time, writing Hour of the Bees, um, this was around the time when the We Need Diverse Books movement was really taking off um, and was all over Twitter. And it was definitely something I was paying attention to and was very, I don't know, I have a lot of, um, <clears throat> I have a lot of questions for myself that are still unanswered, like why, 
what what were you hoping to do? Did you did you think that you were helping by writing a, a character of color? Because I know that there are some people who say who I think there's some writers who feel like they're offering some gift or that they're 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 being helpful to this inclusion movement by writing characters of color <clears throat> excuse me and I know that that wasn't my intention because I I don't write with the aim to help anyone at all um so I I, I wasn't thinking that I was being so benevolent by writing a character of color um like that wasn't my intention I I do I live in Utah which is a very very white state but there's tons of diversity here um plenty of it and uh and I just I don't know I I again I don't think I'm answering your question so so I did a lot of reading um I read um I read a ton of magical realism specifically because I knew that that's what that was the uh, sort of tone and like tradition that I wanted to draw on. Again, I would not make that choice today. Um, I read a lot of forums about what it was like to be Mexican American rather than reading upfront articles or like nonfiction books. Um, and this was 2012, 2013, when it was a little safer to be like trolling forums for information like this. I read a lot of blogs. Um, and then I had a lot of, you can call them sensitivity readers or authenticity readers or whatever you want to call them. I had a lot of um, Latinx readers read through the manuscript and point out anything that was racist. And there were plenty of little things that were in there that I hadn't realized were racist that were pulled out. And then um, Candlewick um, hired their own authenticity reader. And um, again, I like, I, I feel good about the, the work that I did. I feel I'm not embarrassed by Hour of the Bees at all. I feel like, um, I feel really proud of the representation that I created, not representation, the depiction that I created of somebody with a very different background of, um, that I have. Um, but I would just do it differently today. Does well, that answer your question? Oh, and then some. Okay, uh, sorry, that was a big- You being so very open. That was a big can uh, of worms. Well, I just have, I, I don't know, I feel um, Hour of the Bees was a huge success and it feels on one hand like, well, it would be really easy for me to just talk about, I don't know, to not have, to not open, to not share my reflections on its success and on its creation since then. Because I'm I mean, grown. Your baby though, right? You still love that. That's your debut novel. You still I love, love that book. Fond of it. Love that book. So proud of it. Wouldn't change a thing. Like just so, so proud. So proud. And this doesn't, uh, it doesn't exonerate me. That's not why I'm saying the following thing, but I've heard very positive things and very positive feedback about what I wrote. And um, so that probably helps me feel a little better about it. I think it would be different if I had a lot of people in my inbox telling me this was problematic. But um, but that's, I mean, that's ultimately kind of what I, what I, the conclusion I came to when I was making the decision about my, my next book 
um, was that the, the representation and the depiction and the, um, the, the good job that you can do um, actually is irrelevant to me. It's more about, well, but who's writing it and who's being paid to write it? And that has very little to do with like whether or not your depiction is problematic or not. Like that's what, that's where I finally came. That's where I landed was like, oh, um, I can be defensive about, but I'll, I'll do such a good job and I'll make sure it's not racist. And I'll make sure I have all of these readers who, who give me the thumbs up and, and um, I'll scour every word. But ultimately, if I go beyond just the book and just look at myself, where I'm coming from, my background and publishing and look at the numbers and look and see like, okay, who else is here writing books? Is it still mostly white people? Okay, then, um, and, and this was hard. It was a really hard conclusion for me to come to. I did not like the idea of only writing white protagonists because that's not the world I live in. That's not the world I like to think that I see around me. You know, it, it just felt very like, oh, really? But like the world is full of so many amazing people and, and it felt very limiting, but um <clears throat> But if I combine writing white protagonists as a, write, as a white author, and I'm saying white protagonists, I'm not saying all white characters because there's, a, there's plenty of room in every book to write characters of color, but it's very different to write your, your, the character um, who's the lens for your book as a character of color. That's very different. Um, I don't remember where my sentence was going. Anyway, it, it's combining that with also buying books that are written by authors of color, making sure that when I'm on a panel, there's authors of color and it's not just all white people. Like those, those are things that I can do as somebody who's in this industry, just to make sure that like, okay, is this a nice inclusive shelf of like pu publishing? Are we all here? Are we all represented? So again, sorry, I just unloaded a whole big, huge, Amazing yeah. bit of content that yeah. was where are we at in terms of getting yep. diverse books out there because we'd be there uh, and we're not yet. We're not yet. Nope. We're just not quite there yet. And as soon as we are, like, I'm sure I will change my thoughts again because we're all works in progress and we all hopefully take in what's going around us on around us and change what we're doing. But definitely, um, I'm watching our time, and it's it's flown by. We we have so many amazing amazing things to talk about. We haven't talked about. Uh, I want to get back, and I want to talk a little bit about yes. being an intern with Mary Cole at some point. But we're going to tease yeah. that now because I definitely want to talk about the Patron Thief of Bread, yeah. uh, which is available sometime in the month of May, depending on when you're listening to us. The esteemed audience is probably already available. You could be buying it right now while you're listening to us talk. Um, and my promise is always to authors, I do not summarize other people's backgrounds and I do not summarize other people's books. How painful for you to sit here and listen to me fumble through it. So <laughs> what does a esteemed audience need to know about The Patron Thief of Bread? So The Patron Thief of Bread is a big, fat, middle grade book. It's very long. I'm so sorry, but I, I'm, told it, I'm told it goes down easy. So um, <clears throat> it is a middle grade book. It's my fourth middle grade. And it is about... Um, a group of pickpocket orphan thieves 
living in a sort of medieval France analog. It's not actually medieval France because um, medievalists online scare me and they uh, are very, they can be very yelly if you get details wrong. So I made an analog. Um, and they decide to place their youngest member, who's this kind of quiet um, little girl named Duck, into an apprenticeship with the town baker. And the idea is that she will pass them bread and coin and steal whatever else um, from under the baker and give it right to this gang. Um, but she's not expecting the baker, Griselda, to be this big-hearted, jolly, warm, understanding kind of motherly figure. And so the book is really about Duck's sort of torn loyalties between this family that she's always known, the Crowns, this group, uh, this gang, and the baker who is ready to take Duck under her wing. And um, so about these kind of these two found families and, and sort of kind of like Oliver Twist vibes, I'll say. Um, and then interspersed between Duck's story is uh, the story of the gargoyle who lives on the roof of the unfinished cathedral in this town. And he is very grouchy. He hates the birds. He hates the other gargoyles because they're just big gossips. Um, but he's very, very lonely. Um, his cathedral will never be finished, which means he'll never be a proper gargoyle because he'll never be able to protect the people who come into the cathedral for sanctuary. Um, and so Duck and the gargoyle, their um, stories intersect towards the end in a very sad but very heartwarming finale. And it's about bread and it's about um, gargoyles and it's I don't know. It's a very cozy, comforting book, I hope. And it's about, it's definitely about found family and it's definitely about um, choosing who you want to be, even if it's totally different than who you were yesterday. And so um, who, who would you say is the ideal reader for this story? Um, a really bookish 12-year-old. Because again, it's a big book. It's long. It's over a hundred thousand words. <laughs> Whoops. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, a really bookish twelve-year-old. Somebody maybe who has loved Kelly Barnhill's work. Somebody who has loved Christina Soon Tornvat's work. Um, somebody who loves Jonathan Oxier's work. Um, it has a real, just like classic middle grade feel. She said, she said so humbly. <laughs> you, you, the, the story opens with an Oliver Twist quote uh, right there. Yeah. So I assume you want to put that, that Dickinsonian uh, mindset oh, yes. yep. up front. Yep, definitely. I love me some Dickens. Although it's not Victorian, it's medieval, but um, the, the character dynamics definitely uh definitely our Dick dickensian she said humbly again <laughs> i'm hoping i'm hoping that that feel comes across yeah well i wondered i did a, a quick search for the medieval city of is it odierne odierne it's Odeon. it's made up and yeah, the only I thing i came up was the was, was your book of okay no it's it's <laughs> it's made up well yeah funny thing about making up a bunch of French sounding cities is then the audiobook people call you and they're like, how do you pronounce these? And I'm like, I don't know, sound French. 
<laughs> the best you can. Have a good day. Best you can. I don't know. You tell me. So, um, and obviously that you know there's 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 a magic involved. There's there's sentient gargoyles. This is not um hundred uh, percent uh, accurate. Um, but I could tell you've done quite a bit of research. How much research do you do and how do you go about it to create this fictional world? Oh, tons of research. Um, and it's ongoing and I, I love it. Um, for this, I mean, books, I, like I start with books. I, um, I usually, I'll go to the library or I'll go online and just Google like medieval life and start there with like a, a nice boring kind of encyclopedia-esque type thing um and then go off from there I found a few podcasts about medieval um like there's a there was a podcast called I don't remember what it's called but it's basically like this day in medieval history and they pick whatever day it is they just talk about events that happened on that day and it could be really exciting things happening like major wars starting or kings being killed or it could be like um, all of these goats got out of this pen in this one town and it was a disaster and they wrote about it. Um, medieval time period is cool and fascinating and not as polished as we like to think it is, I guess. I mean, we like to talk about it being really smelly and like gross, which it, it kind of was, but also people were not as pious and dutiful as, as, I feel like they're depicted often. Like they're just people. Like they're all, I don't know, running around, pranking each other, yelling at each other, going to church, not going to church. Like just, just, just people. Um, and I, I fall down rabbit holes and often will, like I learned about the, um, the hot fairs of um, Champagne County. Are there counties in France now? I'm not sure. The, Ch the Champagne region. Um, there were these hop fairs, which basically were just summertime fairs that would travel around in this region and kind of like farmer's markets. Um, so I read a ton about those and was like, oh, I have to put these in. And so they're in a chapter of Patron Thief. Same with learning about, um, I mean, obviously I watched A Knight's Tale a million times um, and included a, a knight tournament, um, but it's not a real tournament. It's just like, it's like a scrimmage basically. Um, so yeah, I mean, do I research the plot or do I research and find things to then shoehorn into the plot? I can't say. A little of both, probably. And that's how you end up with a hundred thousand word middle grade book. When you sit down and you're you're about to embark on a new book, how much do you have? Do you have your beginning, middle, and end? Some idea of that? Yes, ideas come to me all at once. Like I, if I have the idea the whole story's in my head, basically, beginning, middle, end. Yeah. So you sit down and you write like a full outline. This is all the things that's going to happen. And then you expand it as you research. Or... Yeah. Yeah. So I write my first draft without doing any research um, because I find it, first of all, I, so far I haven't written anything that I don't at least have like cursory knowledge about. Like if I had to sit down and write something about the dust bowl I would have I would have nothing I'd be like I got I don't know I, I got nothing I have no story to tell here but I can write convincingly about you know pirates or Bigfoot or a medieval cathedral because there was at least a little bit that I could start with so I like to start with the first draft um 
just so I can get the story out and kind of see the shape of it. It, it, it feels more like a rendering and it's really messy and there's lots of placeholders and there's lots of um, me talking to myself in the manuscript um, because my rule is to just keep writing even if I'm saying like okay I don't know where this is going maybe I could do this I write all of that down like I I I just if I stop then the anxiety catches up to me and I realize like oh I don't know what I'm doing this is terrible but if I keep going um I don't know it helps me and so I finish with the first draft and then that's when I I read through and I outline it to see like what the heck I just wrote um, to like look for the plot. And at that point, that's when I start researching. And I, I really love, um, I, I research, I, I go through the manuscript and write down everything that I need to research big and small. And it's really fun to then go do the research and then come back in and plug all that stuff in because some things are really big and you're like, oh, I need to research like medieval money systems. That's bigger than just like plugging it in. But other times it's like, research, I, I need to know the name of this shoe, like what would they call just basic shoes um, or whatever. And then I, I just write the question on a note card and, and then it, and then it, it feels like secretary work when I'm in research mode then, because I have this stack of index cards that I'll have questions that I need to research and, or I feel like I'm like studying for the SATs or something. Like it's just very left-brained, go through the cards, write the answers on the cards. And then on the next draft, I have my stack of cards there and I have my messy manuscript and I, I type it in. And when I come to something that I need to know, there's my cards and they're usually in order too. And it's really nice to just like, be like, oh, past me researched this so wonderfully, like I'm my own assistant. And um, anyway, so I, I try to separate the story from the research as much as I can, because they just scratch different parts of my brain so much. And um and again, they affect each other so much that I actually, yeah, I, I, I try to keep them separated as, as much as I can until they ultimately consume each other and become, yeah, inseparable. And you can't stop the momentum of drafting to go do research right then and just find out the one thing because you'll spend an hour online looking at stuff. Yep. And the book won't get written, right? Exactly. Well, and, or, or I'll find other people who have done what I'm trying to do better. <laughs> And it feels devastating or yeah, it, it um, yeah, I definitely, it, it's all about keeping that ego happy. And, um, and that means like blinders on pretend like what I'm writing is the best thing in the world right now. So you need that illusion that you're the first person that's ever even attempted something like this. Nobody's ever written a medieval middle grade ever. <laughs> but me, <laughs> So original. Yeah. So when do you start reading the market to see who else has done this and what can I learn from their uh, successes and failures? Um, pretty early on because I, um, I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing that actually. And I don't feel very threatened by what other people have already written. Um, in fact, uh, <laughs> right around the time that I was getting ready to turn this into to copy edits. Um, this should have come out in fall last year. And Candlewick said, actually we have Kate DiCamillo coming out with a medieval middle grade in the fall. So maybe we should push yours back so that it doesn't get you know overpowered by the Kate DiCamillo train, which is a, a massive one. Um, and 
There's my no editor. Problem. Maybe you can ride uh, right behind her as she exactly. breaks. Exactly. And you get there. That's exactly it. Yeah. And I, um, I thought about, there's a scene in the show, New Girl, when Nick is talking about, talking to Jess's dad, who's played by Rob Reiner, um, about his book that he's writing, this vamp or this zombie novel, Z is for zombie. And he's talking about how there's a love triangle with the zombie and a werewolf and this girl. And the dad says, well, that sounds like Twilight. That sounds just like Twilight. And it's set in Seattle. And Nick pauses for a second. And you think he's going to say, like, dang it, like my book's already been written. But instead he says, well, whoever wrote that is really smart. And I, that's just like my take is just like, oh, a medieval middle grade coming out about a, a girl and there's some goats. Well, whoever wrote that's really smart. So um, yeah, I, part of the research too is finding other books tonally that match with what I'm trying to do. And that might be books that are medieval, but it also might be books that are not medieval. So um I read a lot of, uh, like I reread a bunch of Lara Amy Schlitz's books and read reread all of Kelly Barnhill's books. Again, not necessarily medieval, but just hit the tone that I really wanted to hit for this book. So I do that pretty early on, somewhere around like the first drafting or the, the outlining, just so I know like my touchstone. So I know my influences and know what I'm going for. Well, I predict that readers are going to be so excited about the patron thief of bread that they're going to say, you know what, I want something that's similar. I guess I'll give that Kate DiCamillo a chance. <laughs> that would be great. That would be great. Yeah, I think that's fair. A nice little chaser for this. Yeah. So we got to talk a little bit about the the length. Uh, 100,000, over 100, 448 pages, over, a little over 100,000 words. Is that yes. in the initial draft? Yes. The initial draft even longer? Oh, the initial draft was even longer. Uh, it was like 130,000 words, I think, maybe at one point. Um, I'm very lucky that Candlewick is sort of like, they don't have specific lengths that they cut their authors off. They're just like, whatever you think is right. Um, however, I was informed that once we go over, I think like 480 pages, the price per book jumps up. The book's production becomes more expensive and we lose things like pretty sheen on cover and nice pages and like, because the, the cost has to be cut somewhere else. And we also lose, there's some schools and libraries that just won't order books that are that big. They just are like, mm, nope, our students are too intimidated by that long of books. So, I, you know, my editor said, look, you can do what you want. We're behind you 100%, but here's what you might be trading off. So we did a lot of trimming. Um, we did a lot of, and, and actually by the time we got through mine edits, it was down around like 110,000. Um, and then from then it was, um, it was getting rid of a lot of the white space. The gargoyle chapters were much sparser looking, like each sentence was on its own blank like on its own sentence on its own um, line break because I just wanted it to physically look very different from Duck's chapters and obviously that like expanded <laughs> the, the pages quite a bit so getting rid of a lot of those page chapters helped shrink the book page wise down quite a bit but yeah it's a big fat book my next book next year is a YA and it's shorter than this which is 
weird, but every book is just the length it needs to be. I, that. I, I get frustrated when I read a book and I can tell that the ending is being rushed a bit because the author ran out of space. Yes. Uh, and just here, everything was resolved in a couple of chapters. I'm like, no, we were going yep. in a nice pace. What happened? I know. And, well, and, uh, and vice versa, uh, books that feel like they've been expanded when they would have probably been very powerful if they had been shorter, you know? Um, but I think especially in middle grade, there's a lot of fretting about page count and book length and, um, because it can be, it can be very intimidating to a young reader to pick up a big fat book like this, but you know, I, I, I think it's an investment for parents who want to plunk 20 books, 20 bucks down for a book that their kid's not going to finish in an hour. <laughs> like, like when, when I buy my kids graphic novels and they're like, I'm done. I finished it. I'm like, we're still in the car. Don't tell me you're done with it. Ah. So that this is like dollars. It was should have lasted at least an hour. No, yeah. Or just like, <laughs> ah, savor it. But um, anyway, and I, I am, I was thinking a lot about Hugo by um, Brian. Brian Selznick. Yeah, you go. Yeah. When that came out, I remember reading a pretty patronizing newspaper article actually about how librarians at schools couldn't keep it on the shelves because kids loved being able to say, I read this whole big, huge fat book. Now, the reason why the article was so patronizing was because, you know, I think the actual word count in that book is only like between 20 and 30,000 words. There's not a lot of actual words because that book is mostly pictures, you know, but it's, it's like an 800 page book. And these reluctant readers, um, as we call them, I guess, um, could carry around that big fat book so proud that they had finished it um, because maybe they were used to just the little, the little readers that they usually are, are able to do. So, and I, I feel like a similar thing is happening with graphic novels that they're big, they're big books and, and readers of all kind of, um, uh, levels can feel really proud that they've been able to finish a whole book. So I don't know, I guess I, I just, I'm not particularly afraid of any page length um, as a writer, because I just know like it'll find its readers, I think, I hope. God bless the good folks at Candlewick Press for uh, giving you the, the freedom and the luxury to be able to do that. I know, I'm very lucky. And they're very, um, they're very passion project author first at Candlewick, which is why you get so many great weird books out of Candlewick. Um, well, I'm uh, again watching the time and where did it go? Uh, it did, you were right. It flies by. <laughs> we're talking about our favorite things, books and writing and publishing. And How often do you get to sit down and nobody looks at their phone and we get to talk about our favorite thing? Very rarely, too rare. Have you ever seen a flying saucer, a ghost, and or Bigfoot? Ooh, Bigfoot, huh? Um, well, I'm in Utah and go up in the mountains a lot. And it always feels like Bigfoot's just disappearing behind the trees. And um, I squint because I'm nearsighted. So everything looks like Bigfoot. I see Bigfoot all the time. <laughs> like, ah, that must have been Bigfoot. Um, a flying saucer. I've never seen a flying saucer. I don't think I've seen a UFO of any kind that made me like, whoa, that's definitely um, something eerie in the sky that I can't identify. But I have 
plenty of ghost stories, even though I don't believe in ghosts the way that they're presented. But I, yeah, I have good ghost stories. I have lots of good ghost stories. Do you want to, well, if yeah, I tease you, here. would you like a good ghost story? Okay, My so, mouth is watering. Don't tease me. Yes. <laughs> so, um, so, well, first of all, I have to ask, have you read Ghostland by Colin something? Ghostland. Colin Dickey, maybe is his name? I haven't, but I can add Okay. It. Highly, highly recommend it because it's basically a, a nonfiction about American ghost culture kind of um he goes around to the most haunted places in america and kind of researches them and then presents his thoughts on them which sounds i guess that sounds kind of like pretentious but it's so good and if you like ghosts and ghost culture you should read it um he 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 talks about like things like why why are ghosts almost always white even in places even like in the south where you would think angry people who died who are coming back after a hard life you would think maybe they wouldn't be white but they're like almost always white and why are ghosts always looking kind of like victorian um anyway so he just like he he um asks questions like that that i i find like fascinating so highly recommend that for you it's an adult novel an adult or adult not novel it's an adult nonfiction. but my ghost story here's my ghost story um my my best ghost story so um when I was a senior in high school, I was a drama geek. I was super into theater, that whole thing. Um, I like lived and breathed it every single day, all day. And because of that, um, me and a couple of my friends were tapped by this local contractor to put together a haunted house, like a Halloween haunted house spectacle, whatever, um, in the local historic hospital that had not been a hospital for a very long time it was this abandoned hospital that everyone knew was haunted I mean it was just it was on main or on state street in the town where I grew up and it just was creepy and boarded up he had bought it to restore it um and before he got on with the restoration he thought it would be a really fun project to make it into like a haunted house for Halloween especially because there were so many people in town who had been dying to like walk through this building I mean there was just so many good stories of creepy things happening there. Um, and so we did that. We turned it into a, a haunted house and um, we we did some terrible things like hiding some brick walls that were falling down when OSHA came by to inspect it. That uh, Like it probably should not have been opened for uh, a haunted house spectacle. We probably should not have had people walking through that. But um, the job that I took on was to do the historical research. I wanted to know everything about this hospital and not only had it, it had originally been built as a hospital sometime in the 1860s or 1870s um, and functioned as a hospital until the 1940s or 50s then it was a bank a church um, a music uh, studio um, lots of different things before it was ultimately like condemned and closed in the 80s um, lots of the things that I found the research that I found um, were about transients that had been living there, like houseless people um, who had like slept there and lived there. And um, I got to, like, I read some of the police reports that they had given uh, when they were unfairly rounded up and arrested for sleeping there because like, it's gross to arrest people for sleeping somewhere where they, people Our need sound to sleep is cut out. 
Uh-oh. Oh, there it is again. Oh, that okay. That was weird. Um, anyway, but like lots of them had stories of seeing figures, hearing voices, hearing little girls. Um, so that was fun to read those police reports. And of course, there were lots of births and deaths. Um, there was a there was a particular legend of a, a deranged doctor hanging a nurse by the flagpole outside. But the coolest thing about this place was there was the crematorium was still downstairs in the basement, um, which was super creepy. And we included it in part of our thing. We, you had to exit through the basement. So, you know, if you went through this haunted house, haunted hospital, it ended with you having to go through this basement um, past the crematorium where my wildest friend volunteered to be inside the crematorium and pop out. I couldn't, I, I like had a hard time even being in the room with the crematorium. It was so creepy, but, um, but uh, about a month before the hospital, the haunted hospital opened for Halloween, we decided to have to drum up some like press and have the local ghost hunters come into the house or into the hospital rather and um sort of do their thing and so they brought tape recorders and they came in and um and uh, you know walked through the house and asked questions and listened and um the ghosts said they didn't like me in particular which was creepy I don't believe a single lick of it. I don't at all, but that was their interpretation. And I was 17 and that was terrifying to hear that the ghosts here did not like me. Like, oh, um, because I was always trying to tidy things up. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying to keep things too clean and they didn't like it. Um, Would it but be there more was. Assuring if they said the ghosts love you, they want to follow you home? I don't know. It was so, yeah, it was, it was just weird. Um, oh, and then. Yeah, it cut out for a second, but I can hear you now. Um, oh, it's telling me my internet connection is unstable. Whatever that means. Okay, I think we're okay. So they had us, the ghost hunters had us each go into this back room, which was where the morgue was, uh, one by one and sort of stand there and just see what happened. And it was during the day, um, so when it was my turn, I went in there and I still don't know exactly how to explain what I saw, but I saw all of the dust, like the sunlight was coming through this window into the corner of this room. We had all of this black plastic, almost like trash bag material hanging from all the walls to make it really dark. And um, I just saw, I like looked in the corner and saw all of the sunlight and like the dust motes, like circulating and forming around like a figure you know like when the where the yeah like like when the the sunlight and the dust stops on an edge of like a physical thing and I I, I just like saw something in the corner and immediately looked down and backed out of the room before I saw anything else I was like if I keep looking this is going to make it so I never ever sleep again I swear um so that's that's my ghost story. It's not, it's not the best ghost story, but it, um, I felt like after working at the haunted hospital, I felt like something followed me home. Um, cause I had a really hard time feeling alone in my room after that. I don't know how to extend. Um, anyway, that was, that was a, a very creepy three months of my life where it felt like ghosts were constantly and talk of ghosts and talk of haunting just, just um, an everyday thing. 
so you had that and you you mentioned you have some other ghost stories uh that we're we're not we're not going to dive into now yeah so all that but you don't believe in ghosts after that i don't know what i believe i don't believe in ghosts as like a Victorian woman walking up and down the stairs in the house where she lived type of thing. I think if there's, if there's ghosts, if there's some sort of overlap between whatever happens after we die, energy, whatever, cool. And I I like ghost stories. I love ghost stories. I don't know. um, I don't know if I believe in corporeal ghosts because I'm not afraid of them anymore. I was in high school and I just am not afraid of them anymore now I can enjoy ghost stories because I I don't worry that like a ghost is going to come sit on the edge of my bed well <laughs> that, that <laughs> remains to be seen that remain. I know we'll see I'll let you know what happens uh maybe I'll have a special visitor tonight um but I I believe in ghost stories I love them I love them so much And like, I'm not, I don't discount anything. Flying saucers, Bigfoot, ghosts, stranger things have happened. And man, we just don't know everything. So I will not be surprised at all if ghosts are real or if we tag Bigfoot someday, or if we, a flying saucer lands on my head. Like I, nothing will surprise me because the world is strange and anything is possible. You're the author of the Bigfoot Files, and as of this recording, you have not seen Bigfoot that you know of. Not that I know of, but there's definitely been times where the mountains, the the woods kind of go quiet, and you think, oh, the birds kind of stopped chirping. (laughs) Maybe. I saw an interview with a squatcher, and he had the best uh, take on on going squatching. Uh, yeah. right, that's the correct for, for going to the that is, Bigfoot. Definitely. Uh, he said, well, I, I hope we find them. But even if we don't, I'm out here. I have a beer with my buddies and we're camping. Yep. It's a great time. But exactly. Yes, good for you, sir. That's exactly it. It's a whole, it, and that's just it. It's it's harmless fun. And it's it all centers around stories. And um, I just think nothing's better. Well, the uh, last Last thing I want to circle back to, and then we'll we'll, we'll land this thing. Yeah. Um, but you uh, spent your time as a as a literary assistant to to Mary Cole, and yeah. so I wanted to talk a little bit about that experience. How do you land that job? Um, well, you are on Twitter in 2011, and you're following Mary Cole, who says that she's looking for a remote unpaid intern to help her for. 10 to 20 hours a week, and you are an aspiring author um, who's trying to learn more about publishing and who is living with your parents while you are raising your child, and you are in a very privileged situation where you do have 10 to 20 hours a week to spare, Um, and so you follow her application process, which was a resume and a cover letter and email, basically, and you're selected. That was basically it. I did that for like, I think seven or eight months before she, this was at the end of her agenting career. So when she left agenting, I was done, but it was great. It was great. Um, um, I was, she had me going through and kind of writing statistics about what deals were coming out. Like, so I had publishers marketplace and would write 
what children's books were announced, um, what, what house, how much, what genre, that sort of, if it was a two book deal, just keeping Excel spreadsheets for her, um, that sort of thing. And, um, it was really, I mean, I learned a ton, learned a ton. So a reader reported that like she's requested a manuscript from somebody and then you go through it and give her a report of what you, what you thought of it, what yep. kind of stuff are you providing? Yep, exactly. Yeah. Just a, a basic, almost like an edit letter, sort of like, oh, here, here are my thoughts on it. Like whether I thought it was worth her investing her time or not. I think she just liked to have different opinions um, before she made an offer because she would read them as well. And we would we would discuss. Um, okay, yeah. so important point uh, for, for everybody listening. This is not in place of her reading. No, 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 no. This is just in addition to. No, this is in addition to, yes, to, to um, so that she can have a sounding board and see if there's some things that are snagging just for her personally, or if it seems to be uh, like a universal thing. There were two or three other remote interns working for her to, she hired like a, a few of us. Um, so we would all, she would get her reader reports from all of us and, and read through. Well, sure. And that's higher, higher 20, higher 50, higher 50. <laughs> I know. Right. Isn't that funny? Um, but it, it's not an unusual practice for agents to have assistants, uh, hopefully not unpaid interns anymore publishing. No, no. Um, but assistants who read like Victoria, my agent, has assistance, lets me know what their role is. And they, yeah, they read um, stuff that I send her too, because she's, she's busy. She doesn't have time to read and reread and, and re-reread everything. So she passes stuff off to her assistant, which is great, you know? Well, I, I, I like and respect Mary Cole, so I should emphasize yeah. Um, that this is a wonderful practice, uh, I'm assuming for you, because in exchange for those months of your time, you're getting an invaluable education that's going to help you to go on to publish your own novels, right? Yep, exactly. And like I said, uh, you know, that first day in the slush pile, just getting an idea of what it looks like on the other side, um, seeing like, oh yeah, it's really easy to send a query that makes you look bonkers. So <laughs> be careful. <laughs> or, um, or even reading manuscripts that are submitted and being considered for representation they're still unpublished you know they're very polished but there's there's something about reading it's the same reason why having a critique group can be really great so you can read unpublished unfinished um unfinished meaning like it's not line edited and copy edited but manuscripts I mean you just learn so much about what your own work is um, lacking or is doing really well by reading other people's manuscripts at that at that phase. So you're reading that slush pile and it's not intimidating you. It's having the exact opposite effect that oh okay, even though there is un undoubtedly this huge quantity of queries coming in, I'm yep. still head and shoulders above the vast majority of these. Yeah, and that sounds kind of snobbish. I, I guess what I mean too is I just was like well, I assume oh, I anyone who listens to this show is in the same position we're we're all on a, on a, on a different level here at middle grade ninja <laughs> good 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 um I have no problem admitting I am a snob but it was just it, it was very validating and very like oh I belong here yeah I belong this is I belong here yeah 
Ah, and then uh, this has been tremendous. I appreciate how generous you've been with your time um, yes. and how open you've been with, with, with sharing details that I think yeah. have a lot of uh, a lot of authors. We hit some heavy topics uh, just just off the ground. We just running, kind of casually we? stumbled into them. I had yeah. questions that were much uh, uh, much less uh, in depth. <laughs> That we, we didn't even get to it. That's fine. I like this better. <laughs> it's great. Uh, you'll come. You're going to keep writing books. You'll, you'll come back. I'll be around. The next one and we'll, we'll keep going. Uh, for today, my last question for you uh, is um, where I usually like to end the show is if you could go back to the start of your career, middle of your career, wherever it would be helpful to you and give yourself some advice that would have made a difference for you then, it might make a difference for everyone watching or listening to us right now, what would you go back and tell yourself? Oh man. I think two things. I think first of all, on a practical level, I would advise myself to retreat from all the chit chat in publishing a lot more often. Um, I love, I love, I don't love Twitter. That's not what I'm trying to say. I love the community that I have gotten over the years on Twitter. I've met some of my best writer friends through Twitter. Um, and it, it really does feel like this water cooler place to hang out and see what's going on. And that can be very comforting, um, especially in a career where you are so isolated so often. Um, but it is a tough habit to break, to feel like I constantly need to be connected or else I'm going to be forgotten about. And I think I, if I could go back and tell myself, maybe around like 2018, <laughs> uh, go ahead and disconnect, go ahead and let that happen because, um, first of all, the connections are not actually severed. If you step back, the, the people who most people will be happy to still hear from you or to they'll, they'll see your books and still think about you. Um, but also a lot of those connections are not actually connections in the first place. Uh, so just, just to, just to step back and retreat into the writing more and make that the practice to let that bubble happen. Um, you know, like I, I think many of us writers daydream about, you know, like a writer's shed or a writer getaway where like, oh, you can just leave everything behind and just like write and not focus on the world or publishing or um, who sold what book. Well, you can do that right now. <laughs> you can do it right now. You can put down your device and you can choose to live and, and to write in a bubble. I mean, even like two hours a day, um, there's a, a great book by Jeff Tweedy, who's the lead singer and creator of the band Wilco. He wrote a book called How to Write One Song. It's so good. It's not just about songwriting. Highly recommend it. He talks about the disappearing. The disappearing, if you can practice disappearing into your work, um, that's like the most important thing to practice. So I wish I practiced that more because now it's harder than ever, especially feeling like I constantly need to be connected to um, the news. And just at, like, I just, I wish that I, if I could go back, I would say, okay, yes, 2018, here's a good turning point for you to practice disappearing. Go ahead and disappear every day, even for just an hour or two, disappear. 
Um, but the other thing that I, I would validate something that I have always known and always forget and have to re-remember that I already know, which is it's really just all about the books. It is. At the end of the day, it's all about the writing. And like whenever I choose writing or choose books, um, I never regret it. And it's always the right answer. And um, look, we don't get into publishing for the paycheck. We don't get into publishing for the glory. Um, if you do, you're going to be very disappointed, I think. Um, I'm here for the stories and for the writing. And, um, and that is, that is reason enough. And it's hard work and it will always be more work than I will get credit for, which is hard. I'm a gold star generation kid. I want all the credit, but that's the wrong career. If I need all the pats on the head for all the work that I've done, but none of that matters when I remember, oh, I'm here to write. I'm here for the writing and the writing always saves me and the writing, it's the end all be all. It's um, when in doubt, turn back to the writing. I would validate that every, every month of my career, I would just be like, yes, this is 2022 Lindsay here to tell you, yes, it's still true. It's still true. I think that's the perfect note to end on. Where can esteemed audience find you online, follow you on social media and all that good stuff? Oh, Twitter. I'm on, I'm on Twitter less than I used to be. Um, I'm on Twitter. Yeah. I'm on Twitter and I'm on Instagram and my website is lindsayeagerbooks.com. It's down this week. So if you look it up, it's going to be down because I'm doing some much needed maintenance, but by the time this airs, it'll be up and running. So, um, you can find me you can find me there. I post lots of pictures of my kids on Instagram because they're funny. And I mostly, I don't know, what do I do on Twitter? Mostly just go on and then go, oh yeah, I don't want to be here <laughs> and run away. But that's where you can find me. Ah, as always, esteemed audience, if you check me on Twitter, I, I, I pity you. Once a week, I'll, I'll tweet something about a Batman movie or a video game, and then I post the link for the show, and that's about it. Uh, but at Middle Grade Ninja, or at MG Ninja on Twitter, if you're so inclined, uh, download your free copy of Banneker Bones and the Giant Robot Bees. It will change your life. Check out thousands of interviews with authors. Almost uh, as wonderful a conversation as this one available at MiddleGradeNinja.com. Uh, and God willing, I'm alive. I'll see you next week.